In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We make an act of faith now as we begin this recollection, this time of prayer. We make an act of faith because as we gaze upon the altar, we see that it is our blessed Lord in his real presence placed there, but hidden under the veil, hidden in that ciborium, and hidden uh, in the holy host with his body, his blood, his humanity, his divinity. Every time we see this, it should be an opportunity for us to make an act of faith, faith in the real presence that we do not see. Now this year, Holy Thursday was uh, very special. As you know, we had the Chrism Mass this year with the new Archbishop in the Cathedral of Toronto. The Chrism Mass is the, the Mass in which the Archbishop celebrates a Mass with all his uh, priests and uh, consecrates the holy oils that are going to be used uh, during the year in the different parishes for the different sacraments. And uh, it's always moving to process up in the cathedral, all the priests dressed in the identical chasubles. Though underneath there are different ages, different hair, different girth, different experiences, different pastoral uh, tasks, varied personalities, different intellectual qualities or capacities, personalities, secular, religious priests, right, left, but all are ministers of Christ, all are acting in the person of Christ. And that unity is beautifully represented by those chasubles that all look the same. And it's an opportunity for us to, of course, give thanks for our own uh, priesthood. But in the evening, we have Holy Thursday, where the Church celebrates, yes, that priesthood, but also the Holy Eucharist, and that moment in which our Lord was with His disciples, and He, and he knelt down and washed uh, their feet. Well, this year I had the opportunity to celebrate Holy Thursday here in the evening, and I think it was the first time that I actually did the washing of the feet. For whatever reason, it's never come up, I don't know exactly, because I've celebrated in different places, but for the first time, I got the opportunity to smell some smelly feet. <laughs> and uh, as I knelt there, it had all been planned out, it was all choreographed perfectly, you know, they had to take off the left shoe and the left sock, and uh, the bowl went underneath, and there they sat, and I knelt there in front of them. And I thought to myself, what am I doing kneeling here in front of these young men? Isn't this the position that we priests are always supposed to be in, kneeling like this? And then I saw pictures of Pope Francis's uh, 
Holy Thursday Mass, in which he knelt in front of uh, a number of adolescents from a juvenile detention center in Rome, 12 inmates of the Casal del Marmo, someplace outside Rome, in which he explained this very ancient gesture, this, ge- this ancient custom, that tradition had always been done by slaves, it was slaves that did this task of washing. And there he knelt with all his health issues in front of these inmates with, they were wearing, you know, ripped jeans and hoodies and no doubt from dysfunctional backgrounds. Some of them had, you know, committed very serious crimes, probably had, had hurt others. And uh, there they were. And here he was kneeling. He said to them, this too will pass, meaning whatever trouble they'd gotten into. This too will pass, but the Lord is next to you and he will never abandon you. Never. You must think of this. It's not clear whether these uh, youths were, were Catholics or what they were exactly. But by serving them, he gave them hope. This gesture of an 86-year-old uh, man, a priest there, a bishop, a pope, kneeling in front of these, uh, these adolescents with all these problems. But of course, it all originated on the night in which he was betrayed. When the Lord himself introduced this gesture, which is present or related in the Gospel of St. John. It's not present in the other synoptics. We hear, have that famous phrase from St. John. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the, in the world, he loved them to the end. That, that phrase, he, he loved them to the end. Infinium dilexiteus. He loved them to the end. He had already loved them in the world as he taught them, but now he loved them to the end. And that is followed, well, at least in the other synoptics with the institution of the Eucharist, and then, of course, the mandatum novum, the new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Of course, in those moments, the Lord knows everything that's going to happen. It's, ever, it's all imminent. Uh, uh, and yet at this full moment of, of intimacy with his beloved, he wants to show them how to love to the end. What, what is that end, to the end? What does that really mean? I mean, on the one hand, it means that Christ's love lasts forever, but also the fact that he will go to the extreme. He will go to the extreme of giving up his life. He says, greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And he would lay it down on the cross, but in a different way he's laying it down now too, as, as he's kneeling there with this gesture, with this, the gesture of, of a slave. He's doing it for his friends. He loved them to the end. And so you and I, in front of our Lord here, who has allowed himself to be taken you know, and, and placed here on the altar, we should reflect on this phrase, to love to the end. Whether in my life I have loved to the end, in your life, in your marriage, can it be said that you have loved 
you have served to the end of your abilities? Or have you given 80%, maybe sometimes only 70%, maybe sometimes just, just like you're done, you know, just 50% or, or less. Or maybe I give a lot and then I seek out compensations. I give myself extra comforts or other forms of compensation. Or maybe I give 95% at work and the family gets the rest, uh, the, the, you know, the, the rest of the 5%. That's the leftover. Or maybe it's 100% at work. And maybe that's why you feel burnt out. Or we could feel burnt out or overwhelmed or stressed or undervalued and demotivated. Maybe that's why your children, your, your wife, your family, they see you're not, you're not quite present there. Does that happen? You get a bit down because your mind is all completely on the 100%, which might be work or some other obsession. It could be something else, I guess, not just work, but you know, it, it explains why sometimes our health can be placed on the back burner. We don't think it's important. You know, well, we think, oh, I'm not going to take care of my health or something. No, we won't say that, but you know, for us to be able to serve others, to give ourselves, we have to be healthy. We have to be at least the best we can. So we ask you, Lord, help me to understand what does it mean to give to the end or to love to the end. Cum dilexisit suos, as he loved his own, quierant in mundo, who were in the world, in finem dilexit eus. He loved them to the end. Hmm? The, the word to love is used so loosely, it's used so, so variously, it's often just applied to feelings and... Uh, Sometimes just any sexual aberration is, is, well, that's love. Love is love, as they say. But what does it really mean for me to love to the end in my life, in my vocation, in your marriage? You know, what does it really mean to love to the end? Can you say that you have done that? I mean, after all, we see this now uh, during the Easter octave. We have these accounts of uh, St. Peter explaining to the people in Jerusalem what, what has just gone on here, right? He says, uh, he says to the people, he says, Christ was crucified by lawless men, he said. Why was he crucified? And he tells the crowd his intense, intense conviction. He says, he, says, he was crucified by lawless men, but God has raised him up. And he refers to the different prophecies that would promise that he would be raised up. The prophecies of, of King David. And he was in the line of David. Okay, the prophecy said that he would be raised up. It was prophesied. But why did he do that? Why did he die? Why did he lay down his life like that? And St. Paul says it very clearly. He died for our sins because... He loved us. Or in his letters to the Galatians, he makes it very personal. He says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. Later, letter to Galatians, you know, me, et semitipsum pro me. You know, he, 
He loved me. Or St. John says, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in, in God, and God abides in him. So that's at the heart of the Christian faith, the fact that our Lord loved us to the end, and somewhere there we have to echo that in our life. It's what Pope Benedict said in his first encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, that this is the heart of the Christian faith, the Christian image of God, and the resulting image of mankind and uh, its destiny. And part of that, I would say, means that just like we see it in St. Paul, we see it in St. Peter and St. John, is to understand, perhaps intellectually, or even feel that we are deeply loved by God. I mean, when we understand that, this, this raises up our sense of purpose, our, our, our mission. When we understand that we're loved, this is not simply an emotional thing or something passing. You know. It comes from that original encounter with God. Of course, for them, for Peter, for, for John, for the apostles, it was their encounter with, with Jesus himself, with Christ. The original encounter. And that's why at the resurrection, well, at the moment, the morning of the resurrection, the holy women come to the tomb and they meet these two angels. And they say, what are you doing here? He's not here. He's not there. What are you doing here? And uh, they say, they, the angels say, he is not here, but go and meet him in Galilee. He awaits you in Galilee. Our Lord says the exact same thing to Mary Magdalene. He says, who are you looking for? And he says to her, and the other holy women, go to Galilee. You know, go to Galilee. I mean, he's right there, but he says, go to Galilee. You know? And Pope Francis has often referred to this expression, go to Galilee. What, what, what does that really mean, to go to Galilee, when he was right there? And for him, the understanding of go to Galilee means that, that, well, that was where they first encountered Jesus. That was the first moment, that they could say, they felt chosen by him. They had that first connection. They yeah, encountered him, the first encounter on the, on the shores of the Lake of Galilee, with the fishermen and all that, their first encounter. And, and this is how... Pope Francis said it this Easter vigil, but he's said it in the past as well. He says, It is not an abstract or ideal Jesus, but to the living, concrete, and palpable memory of our first encounter with him. Yes, to go forward, we need to go back. To remember, to have hope, we need to revive our memory. This is what we are asked to do to remember and to go forward. If you recover that first love, the wonder and joy of your encounter with God, you will keep advancing. So remember and keep moving forward. So to love to the end has something to do with rediscovering that initial encounter that we had. And we are invited to think about that moment of conversion when we realized God's love for us, the extent to which we realized it, it would be different for everybody. For some, it was a friendship with somebody that helped us to see this. For others, it might have been a moment uh, in a confession. 
for some it may be been in their first communion when they realized that Jesus was coming to them in their first communion. For others, it was a moment of a conversion in, in reading the gospel and seeing a benediction. It's that encounter, the meeting. Probably analogous was the way you met your your spouse. When you when you said you clicked, you know, that this is her, yes, yes. And this is what we have to go back to, not just to stay in the past, but in order to go forward, to reinvigorate our sense with the truth that we have encountered him, or, or better said, he has encountered us. You've all no doubt heard that story of André Frossard, the famous uh, French journalist who you know, went on to write a, a famous interview with Pope John Paul II. And uh, he recounts that when he was an atheist, he was a complete, like, total atheist, didn't believe anything, and sometime in the 50s, I don't remember what year it was, but he had a rendezvous with a friend in front of a church. The church is probably known, I don't remember which church it was, but his friend said, yeah, yeah, let's meet in front of that church. You know that big church? Oh yeah, yeah, let's, let's meet there. And he was waiting outside the church, the guy wasn't showing up, wasn't showing up, and so he saw this church door, and well, so, well, maybe I'll just, you know, walk in, see what this thing is. He had no notion of Christian faith at all, barely knew anything. And it turned out that as he went in, it was kind of dark, and it was in the center, it was lit up. And it was like this. It was the Blessed Sacrament exposed on the altar. And there were people praying. And he saw the monstrance. And he walked in front of the monstrance, and he said just as soon as he came in front of him, he did not know what this was. He had no formation. He had no idea what this was. And the first thing he saw, and first thing he thought, you could say, was, God exists, and I have met him. Mm-hmm. Dieu existe, et je l'ai rencontré. And he, it was like a, like a miraculous encounter. God suddenly spoke to him through that host, even though he didn't know that it was a host, that he, you know, he didn't know anything about that. And it's to that that he would constantly go back to uh, in his life, as he sort of reawakened the truth of, of Jesus' encounter with him. I mean, shortly after that, he, he met a priest, he, RCIA, whatever. You know, he, he eventually became, was baptized and became Catholic. But that was the initial encounter. That was his Galilee. Would that you and I be able to discover what our Galilee is? You know, write it down, you know, put it in your phone, and tap it, and then comes up, you know, like it's a memory thing. I don't know. It comes, you know, it's like a, like a short, like a YouTube short. What, you know, what is your Galilee? Do you know what it is? Can you articulate it? That's the moment you clicked. And so we can go back to this to persevere in our marriage, in our vocation, to be able to go forward, to be able to love to the end. Not to love 20, 30%, 50%. Maybe we're loving ourselves 100% or 90% and giving a little bit to, to those who happen to be observers of our life. Let's go forward. Maybe he lured us to his love as what happened with St. Augustine, a famous quote that never gets old. Mm-hmm. St. Augustine, who recounts how it took, it took 
God's so much, so much patience of God eh, to to lure him in, and he recounts uh, in his confessions. He's book ten, famous line. He says, "Late have I loved you, O beauty, ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness." I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. You were with me. And it took him time to discover that he was, God was with him the whole time. Would that your marriage be ever ancient and ever new. Ever ancient and ever new. Like the first days, perhaps when you were dating, or now you can renew it, uh, the date night, uh, all has to be driven by your love for God, your love for that encounter, and obviously your love, love for your spouse, which is an expression ultimately of that love of God. Ever ancient, ever new. But now we're in the Last Supper, and we see the full extent of that love of Jesus for his apostles, for us too. He washed their feet out of a spirit of service, out of an act of service to show them his love for them and then also to prepare them for the, for the institution of the Eucharist, what that would be. And there they were all, slightly confused, slightly uncertain. And at that most intimate moment of the expression of God's love, of the gift of himself, there was one who was kind of in the dark. That's when the devil entered the mind of Judas to betray him. Well, let's say he'd already entered his mind, but it was clear that Judas was not ready to love to the end. He had loved for a while. That's, there's no question. He'd been chosen. He'd not been chosen in order to be the betrayer. He'd been chosen to be an apostle. And probably he was quite generous, I would say, for a while. And, but then, with time, his human instincts took over. He lost his enthusiasm when the need for sacrifice began. He kind of withered. His doubts about this unconditional love probably happened maybe at the first time when the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish took place. At that moment, people wanted to make Jesus king because they associated the bread with the manna of Moses. And, uh, you know, they thought, well, now, now this is going to be the new manna, the, the new Moses. He's given us manna. Now this is the new king. You know, he's going to be our, our leader. He's going to be our new prophet. Moses the prophet, the new king. Probably the disciples of Emmaus were thinking that because they thought he was a prophet and he was going to liberate Israel. That's probably what Judas was thinking too. It was the moment to take the opportunity to take up arms. Get rid of those nasty Romans. But Jesus just slipped away. Remember he said, my kingdom is not of this world. That Judas couldn't take. What do you mean not of this world? Dude, I mean, come on. You're a king. That's when he began to have his doubts. And uh, 
he was expecting a kind of human triumph. And I, was, I suspect that he was probably um, uh, complaining inwardly when he saw Jesus wash the feet of the apostles. He thought it was rid- a ridiculous farce. So we ask our Lord now to help us understand what it really means to love to the end, how we apply it you know, in our life. We know, I mean, our Lord loved to the end because he loved until death, but it also refers to the fact that Christ's love lasts forever. It also lasts, let's say, it refers to the fact that he will go to the extreme of giving his life and, he, and leaving himself here with us in the Eucharist. So we ask our Lord to help us understand this. And uh, you remember how, how when he approached Peter to wash his feet, he said, Lord, you will never wash my feet. I mean, that's, that's below you, no way. You know? And Jesus said, look, if, you don't wash, if I don't wash your feet, you can have nothing to do with me. And then Peter so humbly said, okay, wash my feet, wash my head, wash my hands, wash everything, do it, go. If I can't, what do you mean, if I can't, you can't have anything to do with me, well then, yeah, go. It's a beautiful painting just outside the Prelatic Church in Rome. There's a statue of Our Lady of Fair Love, a beautiful marble statue that people kiss, and then they go into the Prelatic Church, and they're told, please kiss the foot. Do not kiss other areas because the foot is replaceable, you see. And so, you know, it gets so worn down by kisses, they can just put a new foot in, you know, because, but the other parts, you know, like, I don't know, it's a sculpture. They don't want to damage it too much. But a lot of people kiss that foot. And then on the right side, there's a beautiful painting of the Last Supper and the moment in which Jesus is washing the feet. But it's exactly the moment where Peter is kind of pointing to his head and saying, you know, wash my head too. And for us, it really means that the Lord has to clean everything. That is, He has to clean my way of thinking, my head, my thoughts. Maybe I'm, I'm just thinking too much about myself or turning around myself, overly focused on my duties uh, and not thinking about those around me, those who need me. Maybe he, I haven't allowed Him to clean me from maybe the ill humor, the moodiness. Mm-hmm. Clean my head, clean my thoughts, clean my emotions. Maybe I've lacked uh, rectitude uh, of intention. I need that purified too. Mm-hmm. Because for me, love cannot just be ensuring the, somehow the best for myself. My thoughts somehow must go to others. Mm-hmm. What they need, how I can serve them, how I can sacrifice. You can, maybe you can, you know, can make it like a, you know, a graph today and how your thoughts were going. Like, okay, naturally you have to think about your work and things, but what is the deepest rectitude of intention in there? Was your focus in work to be recognized, to be praised, to be successful? You know, what, what is the real rectitude of intention there? And, and we have to probably rectify often. That's what it means loving to the end. It's why we need the Lord to clean our, our feet and our head. And uh, the Lord, at the level of feeling, he, he gave himself. He was fully dedicated to serve. Because love is really an act of, of the will. 
it has to go deeper than merely how we feel about things. We have to, for example, you know, we love to the end when we love the others with their defects, with their hang-ups, with their obsessions. It would be easy to love people because they were always stunning and amazing and f- wonderful. It would have been easy to love Jesus and to love our Blessed Mother. They had no defects. But the apostles had a lot of defects. They were not always easy to get along with. And it's as though our Lord is inviting us to love to the end. Maybe I too often justify my lack of correspondence, my lack of generosity to the other ones. I justify it because of the defects of others. Maybe because of the defects of your children, defects of your spouse. Oh, well, she's like this. She's a, you know, that's why I'm not going to be, I'm not going to go further. But Jesus was giving us an example of unconditional love. No conditions. No, he didn't love them because they were, you know, without defects. They had defects. He wasn't saying, I love you as long as you have these good qualities, then okay. But if you don't, well, then you're not within the parameters of of me loving you. <laughs> you know that, that story I've told you before about, uh, that. you remember that famous uh, self-help author there, Stephen Covey, you know, he wrote this famous book about seven habits of highly effective people and wrote a number of interesting books. And um, he tells the story of a man who said, came to him and said, look, look, I, I no longer feel any love for my wife, you know. And um, he said, well, you know, then you should, then you should love her. No, no, but the thing is, I don't feel love for her. So, like, uh, it's gone. My feelings are gone. The old feelings, they're gone. He said, well, then, then love her. Well, look, you do, I think you, you, don't, you don't quite understand. I mean, the, the, you know, the feeling, it's just not there. It's just like, try, I've tried to bring it back. It's just not there. Then he, again, he said, look, then love her. If the feeling isn't there, that's a good reason to love her. Right? And he says, well, how do you love when you don't love? And that's the famous line. He said, well, my friend, love is a verb. It's a verb. Love the feeling is the fruit of that love, of that verb. Love the feeling is a fruit. But love is a verb, it's an action, it's this idea of, you know, he loved them to the end. He said to him, love her, serve her, sacrifice, listen to her, empathize with her, appreciate her, affirm her. Are you willing to do all that? And the guy was like, whoa, you know. It's as though, as though the whole thing was an inward-looking process, the feelings you know, that he was getting out of his relationship with his wife. So, well, we ask uh, this of our, our Blessed Mother. It'll lead us uh, to that greater generosity. And perhaps uh, today we can ask, you know, well, to what extent can that really be applied to me that I, that I must really love to the end? Have I loved to the end or have I just loved a certain percentage? Our Blessed Mother will help us, she'll guide us, she'll intercede for us, so that uh, we too will be able to take on that task of washing the feet of others, that act of service, that generosity, but letting our Lord wash us, wash our mind, our way of thinking, our way of acting, especially to fortify our will, so that we give ourselves thanks to God's grace 
and God's, um, God's help, and we can imitate Him in our love for God and love for others. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.